welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and this week's podcast is going to be about the biggest leak in history. This week began with a surprise revelation around 7pm UK time on Sunday night Tweets started appearing referring to the Panama Papers. Journalists around the world started putting articles out and we soon got to learn about a treasure treasure trove of unimagined proportions from a law firm in Panama called Mossack Fonseca, which overnight became a household name. The newspaper that started this whole revelation was the Süddeutsche Zeitung, the biggest Bavarian newspaper based in Munich. And my first guest today is Stefan Cornelius, who is the head of the international section at the Süddeutsche Zeitung, who will talk to us about where the data comes from, what it means and what the big stories are. And after Stefan, I then talked to Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, our expert on all things Russia, about some of the juicier revelations uh, about people in the post-Soviet space. And finally, I talked to Sebastian Dulin, who is our guru on money and finance, a senior policy fellow in our Berlin office and also professor of international economics at the University of Applied Sciences in Berlin. Um, Stefan, you must have had a pretty exciting week. Well, the paper has basically, and uh, the credit goes to our investigative team, which is quite uh, outstanding in what they did and what they actually researched over more than a year now. The uh, the data was leaked uh, more than a year ago to us, some of it at least, and then it kept on flowing. And what they did is pretty much put the puzzle together and built a huge uh, group of uh, journalists worldwide to... uh, push it in the market and now we went online on Sunday night and uh, put it on print on Sunday night and since then the the show is on. It's a huge revelation. It's, as you say, the biggest league ever and is really shaking the world. So do you want to tell us a bit about how you managed to get hold of the, the data? What are these documents? Where did they come from? Well, we were uh, contacted by an anonymous source uh, more than a year ago, digitally, on a chat, uh, and he offered data, uh, and our uh, investigative people definitely uh, agreed and said, uh, we'll have a look at it. And from then on, um, the stream of, um, uh, of information was coming in. Um, it turned out after a while that uh, we indeed had, for the first time, uh, the best view so far on the offshore business, basically on what is being uh, done in in hidden accounts uh, on in offshore um, municipalities, which provide for um, well, for anonymous uh, hiding of assets, of values, of papers, of whatever. And this gives you a unique view in this world, in the shadow world of, uh, uh, of money and also wealth. Um, and since we had that view, we then tried to uh, put bits together, uh, mostly names and sort of um, entities which were 
of interest and which were legally which we were legally able to disclose. Um, so according to the German law, these are uh, people of public interest, i.e. politicians uh, or other uh, public import, publicly important people. And um, uh, so we, we, we set up a database with all these terabytes we had, a searchable database, and uh, tried to uh, form a picture of how this offshore business does work, what is in it, who is holding it, who is behind it, and what might be the reason for it. So I read that there were 400 journalists working on this from all over the world. How did you manage to keep it secret for such a long period of time? Well, for the in the first stage, we kept the data to ourselves and structured it and, and made it readable. Uh, then our investigative people uh, turned to the International Center of Investigative Journalism in Washington, a uh, nonprofit group we used to work with before on other leagues, uh, for example, uh, the offshore leagues or um, uh, the Panama. Uh, sorry, the the. Uh, Cablegate, Offshore Leaks, Lux Leaks, Swiss Leaks. Um, this group um, is, is a well-established formation of journalists which work investigatively all over the world. And they were uh, called together mostly in uh, sort of closed session meetings and not, uh, not on, a, on a digital way uh, to decide on what to do with the data. And so the data was split and sent to those people who could better investigate them because they were closer to where things happened, let's say in Pakistan or in Africa or anywhere in the Middle East. Um, and all over, the, uh, over, the, over a couple of months, the group grew up to 80 different media outlets in the world, uh, 400 journalists working in those 80 medias, uh, uh, things being published in 20 languages. And we agreed to share the data for several reasons. First, the volume is so huge, we couldn't, we couldn't go through it all on our own. And secondly, um, working in a group makes uh, research much more, uh, well, effective, but also safer. And it's not about uh, safety of Western media. We are talking about safety of media in countries which might not be um, where, where exposing things like that actually comes with a threat. So how James Bond-like was the whole operation? Because, I mean, we, we learned a lot about Snowden and what happened to, to him, and there have been documentaries made about that. Um, was this something where there was a, a lot of kind of secrecy and intrigue? Uh, actually, not as much as one might think. Uh, I was uh, amazed myself that this uh, consortium of international journalists, uh, investigative journalists, actually kept quiet for so long, even though it was a rather big group of 80 people or 80 media. Um, but uh, in the end, they met twice. Uh, all the data was shared uh, digitally but encrypted, and all the communication also went via encrypted uh, uh, email accounts. Uh, so that's all of James Bond, which was there. And uh, uh, definitely the, 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 the final phase was then, in the end, the most important when we confronted those who were addressed in the leaks, uh, when we confronted them with the material and asked the questions which needed to be asked. And I think it's a journalistic duty to confront those um, who are accused with the accusations and they had a chance to react the most um, 
uh, sort of uh, visible accusation or confrontation was with the uh, Icelandic prime minister. And we all probably saw that video where he uh, learned that we knew about his uh, about his uh, uh, account uh, and he was rather stunned and didn't want to share too many details about it. So you're a foreign policy uh, guy, uh, Stefan. Um, from a foreign policy perspective, what do you think the most kind of interesting revelations are that, that you managed to unearth? Well, there are a couple of um, factual um, um, revelations which are stunning for, from my point of view. First of all, in our Western Hemisphere, mostly from Iceland, where we now know that the government lied to its people and I wouldn't be surprised if um, if this government would have to step down or the prime minister would have to step down very soon. Um, secondly, I'm not that amazed that in rather undemocratic um, countries all over the world, we do find a very strong connection between um, assumingly illegal money and um, non-democratic governance forms. So the less oversight there is, the less control, the less check and balances we do have in political systems, the likelier it is that you find uh, very high-ranking people from those countries being involved in dubious money uh, schemes. So Vladimir Putin's one of the names that, that came up with it. Which are the other ones that you think are, are particularly... Vladimir Putin didn't come up personally, and this is very important to, uh, to state, but we do have a very strong paper trail leading towards Vladimir Putin, to his immediate environment, to his closest friends and allies, um, and where, where we do uh, now establish proof that there is an enormous amount of money going through those accounts. Um, but none of it really, none of those accounts really bears the name of the Russian president. This is very important. So the direct link is not there, but definitely the link towards his inner circle. And one is definitely assuming what are these people, where are those people having all that money from and what are they needed for? Um, and are there other ones? Well, the Pakistani prime minister's um, family is involved. We do have... Uh, a couple of minor cases in Europe, a lot of uh, African cases, which will come up over the next days and weeks. Uh, tomorrow we, on, we will publish information on uh, the Assad family and its, um, and its uh, uh, offshore activities. Uh, there's a lot of in Latin America happening. We do have uh, the new uh, uh, Argentinian... Um, uh, uh, President uh, Macri, uh, which is causing huge uh, out, out, uh, uh, outrage. outrage in outrage in in, in uh, Argentina right now. So you you basically look all over the world and you find people being involved. So one of the big things that has happened in recent years in terms of uh, foreign policy making, particularly for the EU, has been the use of the sanctions weapon uh, going after individuals and their assets. Does Do these re revelations show that sanctions don't really work if people can hide their assets so effectively? It is one of those um, uh, things we can now learn that sanctions can be bypassed. I mean, we all knew that they can, and now there is proof that they were bypassed. Um, North Korea, the Assad family, um, uh, many more countries which were 
punished with sanctions. Uh, those those figureheads at, uh, in those countries were able at least to profit personally or to bypass those sanctions and keep up their personal profits. Uh, the, the sanctions do hurt um, countries and the ordinary people. And this is what we all knew. Uh, now there is proof on the other side that sort of the rich and powerful can maintain their their paths to their bank accounts. Um, however, what probably the most valuable political impact might be is that we again now managed to expose those safe havens that we, um, after very successfully limiting illegal money, money um, hiding schemes in Europe, in Switzerland, in Luxembourg, in Liechtenstein over the past years, now world opinion and world uh, um, observation is, is turning towards uh, the other safe havens. And this is Panama. Uh, we are talking about other Caribbean countries and there, w- there will be many more to come. And what do you think is going to happen now? Presumably you're going to carry on publishing more stuff in the days and weeks ahead um, and uh, letting off lots of different bombs in different uh, political systems as a result of it. Um, but w- what do you think is going to happen in terms of the, the kind of bigger political consequences? Well, at least there is a, I think there is a, um, an opinion forming now, at least in the West and in, in, in Western Europe, or also probably in, in, in the G20, that uh, this kind of uh, money hiding has to be stopped or has to be controlled much better. Now, there is a limited way to influence, let, let's say, the Panamesian uh, jurisdiction. We can't impose, we can't tell them to change their law. So if they um, provide for this, for those um, operations, we, we can't stop it. But what we can do in Europe and uh, probably in most other Western democracies, we can stop those middlemen from offering uh, such options. And now we're talking about banks, we're talking about lawyers, um, we probably have to impose much stricter laws on um, uh, on transparency uh, issues. Uh, and so the, the, the legal threat is the one thing. And the other thing is now the threat of being exposed, the threat of being dragged out in, in the light. Um, and since this leak now proves that uh, your, your account is not safe, I guess a lot of, of those people who are hiding their money will have a second thought on whether this is a good idea or not. Okay, well, it's been a pretty exciting week for you so far. We'll look forward to seeing what you have to reveal over the, the next few weeks ahead. Um, thank you very much for, for talking to me, Stefan. So that was Stefan Cornelius from the Zudeutsche Zeitung. I'm now going to talk to Kadri Leek from our Wider Europe programme. Kadri, you've been chewing over some of the revelations in the newspapers about the Panama Papers. What What caught your eye? We heard from Stefan just now about the, the Putin stuff. Is that uh, something that you noticed? Yes, I did <laughs> notice that, but um, I, I'm not really surprised at all. Uh, it has been talked about for a long time that Putin probably has lots of money uh, in, in the West, uh, not directly traceable to him, but to middlemen who are close to him. And Sergei Raldugin, his cellist friend, uh, sticks out in, in, in this context. Uh, but also, it has been striking, of course, to follow the debate in, in Russia as well as in Ukraine. It's deep contrast. While everyone in Ukraine is discussing the relations about Poroshenko, 
then no one in Russia is discussing what has been said about Putin, except in alternative internet-based media. But state media is uh, is basically neglecting the whole issue or dismissing it as anti-Putin plot. So maybe for those of us who haven't had a chance to go through all of the findings, so what 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 did you find out about Poroshenko in the in the papers? Well, uh, the most stunning fact about Poroshenko is that in 2014, August, when uh, a Ukrainian army was encircled in Ilovaisk, uh, he was busy creating a shell company. Um, it's, it's actually unclear whether that was himself or someone else. He has said that he doesn't manage his business assets himself since he was uh, elected president. So it could be that the whole uh, story is a lot more innocent than uh, it, it looks. But still, the vigorous interest that, that Ukrainian society is taking in it uh, is, is is very telling, especially if you compare it to the silence in Moscow. So what's the so what has the Ukrainian media been saying? Well, uh, Ukrainian media has been uh, raising questions about. Uh, appropriate nature of, of, of such interactions and, uh, and and whether or not Rizko together with Poroshenko being a president and remind you questions about Poroshenko's business interests and potential clashes with his political uh, duties has been the topic in the society for a long time and there is some haunting frustration in Ukraine about uh, about the corruption issue not being addressed in ways that society uh, thinks is appropriate. So that that clearly gave another uh, push for all those discussions. It is actually also interesting to think, and here, Mark, actually, maybe you can, you can help. I've been wondering what will be the effect uh, of, of Barshenko exposure to the touch referendum or Cameron's name being mentioned to the Brexit referendum. So I, I think there could be some wide-ranging wide uh, consequences as well, hard to define for now. Ah, yeah, no, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, so far, the British debate is only just getting started about um, uh, the, the fact that David Cameron's father, Ian Cameron, seems to have uh, made some money... Um, uh, helping um uh people minimize their tax um uh bills uh, by using some of the the former british territories but there's obviously no evidence that he did anything illegal but people are asking whether the money that was raised through these things helped to put cameron through the highly prestigious eton public school and whether the three hundred thousand pounds that he inherited from his father when he died um a few years ago might have been made through these sorts of um, methods and there's also questions about whether the cameron family has money in uh uh in offshore bank accounts at the moment but we'll see how that uh how that debate um uh, plays out they're not yet big crowds outside of downing street like there are in uh, in iceland <laughs> um so what about the the russian thing you mentioned that there's no evidence at all that putin um has uh, any money in these places himself um stefan cornelius said earlier that his name's not mentioned in anything but um there is media 
stories about uh, hidden money being linked to some of his uh, family members and, and friends. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Well, um, the um, most notable character in Reese Papers is Sergei Rodugin, uh, Putin's old-time friend who's a musician. And he's an exception among the Putin's inner circle, uh, at least as I know it. He has not been to KGB, and he has not been part of that uh, uh, cottage-owning uh, circle called Ozera or Lake, or, or other circles where Putin's friends usually come from. And he hasn't been handed uh, big uh, businesses in, in Russia, unlike many of, of Putin's friends. So he has sort of stood in the sidelines uh, so far and occasionally commented about Putin. He plays a prominent role in, in Putin's very first interview book, uh, telling people who Putin is, what he's like. But now uh, it turns out that that huge sums have passed through him or uh, or come to him in his offshore bank accounts. And, you know, being a musician, a cellist, he, he has no... He has no good excuse for that. I mean, it's 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 clear that he serves as a cover for someone else. You don't think that his his cello playing is so great that he would get millions of pounds of record sales? Or is it how how large are the amounts are we talking about? Is it hundreds of millions or just millions? Or well, overall, it's it's two billions. Not all of that is linked to him, but uh, but but hundreds of thousands clearly clearly are. Right. That is true. But also, I think one important thing uh, to keep in mind in, in that context is um, we are all discussing whether Putin is mentioned or not. He does not need to be. As our visiting fellow, Mark Kalauti, uh wrote in his uh, yesterday's piece, and that is very true, all of Russia's money is, in a way, Putin's, because he can... Uh, he can impoverish anyone, take away his property, and he controls all significant property in Russia. So basically, Russia's real currency is power and, and influence, and Putin controls all that. So he doesn't really even know, even need to own, own money explicitly. Uh, but he needs money to be uh, handled by people whom he trusts and and controls. And that is what we see in those uh, offshore accounts very clearly. And has Putin said anything about this since the revelations came out himself? Uh, Not as far as I know, uh, but quite unprecedentedly, his spokesperson tried to preempt the exposure a few days earlier. He went on air saying that a huge anti-Putin provocation is being prepared in, in the West. Uh, that is unusual. They usually don't, don't do such, such thing. Um, and also Russian state media has been remarkably silent about it and, and not quite sure what tone to adopt when eventually they will be forced to mention it. And then in the end, it seems that the tone they have chosen is to be very blasé about it, to say that, well, it's nothing significant, uh, um, nothing new, bad journalism, uh, politically motivated. So basically to dismiss it as as, uh, much ado about nothing. And what does it tell us about 
the uh, sanctions regime against Russia, because a lot of the sanctions which people have imposed after the annexation of Crimea were to individuals rather than to the country as a whole. Does this show that maybe they're not very effective if, if money can be easily squirreled away in uh, Panamanian, through Panamanian offshore companies and things like that? Well, sanctions are not the topic in Russia in, in this context, at least, at least not yet. And many of these transactions actually are related sanctions. So uh, the question how sanctions have influenced that sort of trail, uh, trade has, has, has not yet risen. Uh, what people do point out, though, is that there's supposed to be a lot more. I mean, the true corruption watchers in Russia, uh, they sort of also dismiss the findings saying that, ha, you only found two billions. Uh, we know there are, that there should be so much more out there. We were talking there about some of the kind of legal and illegal things, but we're now going to talk with Sebastian Dillin, who's going to make sense of how all these things fit together, what it means for Europe and its economy to have uh, these sorts of offshore centres. Sebastian, you're the big brain at ECFR who thinks about economics and the operations of the global financial system. Can you explain for people who don't understand this kind of weird uh, world that uh, has been exposed in the Panama files, exactly what it is that's been exposed? What are offshore, offshore firms? How do they work? What's the difference between them and offshore accounts? Okay. Um, I mean, um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what all this, uh, these lawyers have put together for their um, customers, but it looks that most of the things they were talking about were offshore shell firms. Um, these are offshore corporations which do not have any real economic activity where, where they are based. Um, they are usually used to hide or conceal the actual ownership of, of certain assets, um, ownership and control of assets, and this is why they are set up. Um, so, so it would work that the, you own an offshore company in Panama, and um, in order to set this company up, you call this um, law firm, and, and they, they provide everything you need for that. Um, it, it would be set up in a way that your name doesn't appear when anyone is doing business with this company. So ideally, they would hire you a nominee director who signs everything, what you want. And sometimes they even have nominee shareholders, which have uh, another agreement with you that they have to do what you want. But you don't, I mean, you don't appear on any of the papers for, for this firm. Um, sometimes they deliver you with uh, blank uh, documents for that firm. They are pre-signed by the director, so you can put in whatever you want later. Um, and then I mean, in this way, you, you have a company and no one knows that, that you are the owner and beneficiary of, of, of this company. Um, and these so, shell. So one thing, one beneficiary, uh, one uh, advantage is that you can be anonymous. Presumably, the second though is that you can um, pretend that economic activity that happens in a country with lots of tax is actually happening in a place with with little tax. Yes, you you can you can do that as well. And I mean, these are shell corporations which have let's say, a more legitimate use. Sometimes you have shell corporations where you say, well, we come, we come from, a com from, from a country where taxation really is too high that we can do proper business there, regulations are too high, and in a way, 
um, the, the tax laws of some developing countries are that if you would follow them all, you pay more than 100% in tax, and obviously this is not feasible. So you set up a company which then owns the, the business, and in a way the profits are, are then um, taxed in a, in a low-tax jurisdiction. Um, some of these things are are done and are provided also by other jurisdictions, but there, there's a difference. Like Panama is very secretive about who owns and who controls the company. And usually if you set up a shell company, let's say in the Netherlands, um, it would not be legal that you have nominee directors and nominee shareholders who um, appear on the paper but never do anything and you just use them like, like puppets. Uh, however, these things are accepted in, in some of the jurisdictions like Panama, and uh, this makes these jurisdictions very attractive for people who really, um, let's say, don't have a completely legit legitimate uh, interest in, in running these, these corporations. So if you wanted to try and quantify the amount of economic activity that's going on from these, uh, through these different channels, because for Europeans who have large welfare states and have a kind of way of life that's centered around uh, having the public sector delivering uh, various uh, public goods for, for ordinary people, um, tax is, is a really big deal. What kind of, what, what, are, are there figures for the amount of activity and wealth that um, is, is hidden in these sorts of entities? I mean, it's, 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 it's extremely difficult because uh, these activities are hidden and then you have, um, let's say you, you have a, a scale between things which are completely legal and which are becoming illegal. Um, for example, if, if you have some kind, they call these things patent boxes, where you have a shell company where you put your patents in and then your own company, the other company is charged, uh, well, a certain fee to use these patents and then the fee goes to low tax jurisdiction even though production and sales are let's say in the UK. So that's what say, um, Starbucks or Amazon. Star Starbucks or, or yeah Starbucks is a good example. IKEA has, has obviously a similar structure. Um, these things are you can you can question their legitimacy, but many times they are they are legal. They are just the result yeah. of the tax rules uh, the OECD countries have written, um, and then well it, it, it becomes a sliding scale where you you get outright illegal by let's say using um, incorrect transfer pricing or uh, even write invoices for exports which never happened and so on, um, and. Uh, so, so it, it's really difficult to to estimate these things. The OECD is saying that they they published uh, two thousand two thousand fifteen in a report where they were saying um, that these transnational operations uh, for 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 corporations um, they they cause a loss of hundred to two hundred forty billion annually uh, in tax revenue. Um, we have some estimates for Germany which say, well, uh, it might be up to 100 billion for Germany alone, but frankly, we don't know. And especially we do not know um, how much taxes are avoided for, well, the, the rich, uh, the elites in developing countries, so you sometimes have very high tax rates. And we, we clearly do not know how much drug money or money is sifted off from um, from budgets from developing countries are are. Uh, sheltered and and hidden in in these um, structures. So, how? What's the highest number then? 
Um, I mean, they, they, they vary very much. And if you look at the NGOs, which, which, which are looking into that, you, you have some numbers which are probably um, unrealistically high. But I mean, um, my guess would be that tax uh, avoidance in all modern jurisdictions and all European social welfare states are probably more expensive than um, the welfare payments you, you pay. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about the whole pension system, but that part which you pay to the very poor. And they are by far more expensive than any figure we have now talked about the cost of, of the refugee crisis. So uh, tax avoidance really is a much bigger problem for our economies than having two, three million refugees in, in the European Union. Yeah, I think I read a figure somewhere that it was like over about half of global wealth is completely outside of the, the system. Is that about right or do you, have you heard? Have you got different <laughs> Frankly, the, the problem is that we Obviously really we don't, don't know. know. <laughs> and I, I uh, because it is so, we, we know so little about this, I would be very careful to, to make these estimates. Um, and I mean, even if, if half of the global wealth is outside of what we know, it doesn't necessarily mean that well, it doesn't tell us much about how many taxes are avoided because, for example, in Germany, we don't have a wealth tax. So if you just hide your wealth, it's, it's not tax avoidance. Um, it only becomes tax avoidance if you have income and then, then you hide that. And because, well, we don't have proper statistics about legitimate wealth in Germany. Um, and so I, I wouldn't go into that to, to put a figure on global wealth or global middle wealth or global tax avoidance here. Okay. But I, I, it definitely is several so times perfect GDP. economist's answer. Um, <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> so um, one of the reasons why it's worrying, though, is because, like, uh, is because of tax evasion. What are the other reasons why people are worried about this? Um, I mean, it also hides economic power. It hides the wealth distribution, and I mean, the rich are not only known for for sometimes evading taxes, but some of the businesses also use their money to buy influence in the political process. And there's been a big debate in the United States about this um, in, in each presidential election again um, with the political action committees, but also we, we have heard a lot about the Koch brothers uh, in the past years, which have obviously used some some part of their money to influence um, the political sphere and influence the political direction and in a way um, this this wealth can damage or even destroy democratic processes this way and therefore there there, there is a certain well unease about people um, living in democracies hiding their wealth Okay, and then some of the other reasons, presumably, are obviously a lot of the the uh, politicians that have been highlighted are not from from Europe, but from other countries. So presumably, money is being siphoned off potentially from um, from national budgets put into these bank accounts, um, and uh, there's also talk about money laundering i mean what are the other kind yeah. of things that, that i mean i mean of course you can use these shell companies to to launder drug money to launder money from 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 all kinds of crime you can use that to as you said uh launder money you have siphoned off your your country's uh, budget money which which was you should have been used for poverty reduction for example or if we look at this case of um icelandic politicians it's it's not clear whether 
um, they might have had a certain interest in the way they dealt with the banking crisis, given their um, their, shell, their their ownership in certain shell companies, which then owned uh, certain claims against um, the banks, which which were bust, which went bust in in Iceland. So, um, and here, this is a question whether maybe some savers, including some British savers, got less than than what they wanted or what they they should have gotten because some politicians siphoned off off some funds and they ended up in some shell company someplace in Panama. I mean, clearly it is in Europe's interest to to move forward against shell companies and shell shell corporations. And um, the, the problem is we have been fighting this battle for a long time and Europe hasn't been united on this. I'm not sure how how we can get it united uh, because interests between big and small countries are, are very different. And as long as you have the asymmetries here, um, there is not that much we can do. Um, so I'm 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 not sure what what European foreign policy can do before we have the united sense where we want to go. Wow. Well, that's a. a... Uh, sobering um, enter the discussion. Sorry for that. (laughs) And that brings the Panama Papers edition of our podcast to an end. I am not going to offer too many links because the whole internet is basically about the Panama Papers at the moment. But if you do go to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts, you will find... Uh, link to the article by our visiting fellow Mark Galliotti on the Panama Papers and how corruption really works in Russia, which was referred to by Kadri Leek when we spoke to her. There's also a fun piece in Wired uh, which talks about how the Süddeutsche Zeitung got hold of the papers and the sort of 007 type activities involved in getting them up um, there, which uh, gives you a bit more background on our conversation with Stefan Cornelius. And um, there's also a chance for you to leave comments. And we'd also like you to go to iTunes if you've got the time and the inclination. And hopefully you can review the podcast, rate it. And if you really enjoy it, you could do the same on SoundCloud. Because uh, if you talk about it and tweet it and rate it, hopefully other people will find it and will be able to enjoy it as well. But for now, from Stefan Cornelius, Kadri Leek... Sebastian Deline and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The editor of our podcast is Katarina Botel-Atsinaro and our researcher is Ulrika Franke. <laughs>